This episode of Life on a Plate is sponsored by Vitamix. Now, Vitamix is much more than just a blender because a Vitamix can make everything from frozen desserts and smoothies to nut butters and dips. You can use it to grind coffee or spices, and this one really threw me. It can even turn raw ingredients into hot soup in just six minutes. In fact, it's a fantastic tool if you want to get more fruit and veg into your meals, and it's great for plant-based recipes too, making it really easy to eat healthily. A Vitamix is simple to use, and here's the bit that I really love, easy to clean, but it's powerful too, and you can expect fast and professional results, which is one of the reasons why many chefs would not be without one. Vitamix have been around since 1921, which is 100 years of expertise that goes into every blender, and they are completely built to last. All in all, a Vitamix is a great investment, and I can absolutely vouch for the fact that it's a total game changer in the kitchen. To get yours, visit johnlewis.com forward slash Vitamix. Welcome to Life on a Plate, the brand new podcast from Waitrose, in which we talk to some very special guests about what food really means to them. We ask about their comfort foods and favorite dishes, their food memories, and even their kitchen disasters. And by the end of each episode, you'll know a lot more about them. With me, as ever, is my co-host, Alison Okavy, Waitrose food editor and kitchen sorceress. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Tell me, what have you been up to? What have I been doing? I've been having a bit of a sort out. And that, for me, generally pertains to just kind of moving books around (laughs) endless or actually starting to move things around and getting distracted by some cookbook and starting to read it and thinking, oh, no, I can't put that in the loft. And then it just spirals. I'm quite bad at that stuff, but I feel like, are you good at that? Are you kind of quite good at kind of sorting and decorating? You seem quite organised to me, Alison. Well, I've been on a bit of a mission. I have really started decorating. And the trouble is when you decorate one room, you then think, oh, that needs a paint job. So you then move on to the next room. And then... See, I, I don't I don't have that problem. I don't have that problem. I, I, I want you to teach me. The trouble is it just escalates. And then when you do a room, then you have to have a massive sort out because everything has to come out and then go back in. And yeah, so you're continually sorting. And I mean, the upside is you end up with like really toned arms <laughs> up with all the the use of the roller so it's, it's it's not all bad and quite a good way to start the year is this the real reason why you're kind of like uh, decorating wildly are you kind of on a sort of fitness drive or whatever i can see this being like a fitness video or something that you uh, that you release <laughs> roller fit <laughs> well i mean it's just a nice bonus but at the same time it's just really satisfying having things getting in order and having a having a good sort out and chuck out no you're right you're 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 shaming me into wanting to be better and i think maybe i will try to start small and do some painting and some decorating i'll tell you what should i help you out should we talk about our guest instead that is a very good idea our guest on this episode is the amazing hugh fernley whittingstall who 
is of course best known for his work with the River Cottage, which has been spun off into shows and books and even restaurants. But what I really love about Hugh and kind of how I first came to him and I think how most people know him is his incredible campaigning work and uh, the fact that for, you know, decades now he's been an advocate for better animal welfare what he's been doing with chicken and yeah he's uh he's an absolute whirlwind and i really love that he yeah he's he's kind of makes these positive changes seem achievable he's got really good strong food ethics and that's really just influenced the way we cook and shop and eat right now it's kind of all everything we kind of do whether it's whether it's the plastic cups that we used to just quite happily take and use and now, and now we're much more driven to thinking about bringing our own cups when we want to go out for a coffee instead of a takeaway and disposable cup. And, you know, it's really just changed and it's all small, simple steps that we can you can do. Yeah. And it's at the heart of a new book that he was talking about, which kind of charts his own personal transformation in a way and the way he's kind of looked at his lifestyle and these kind of cut back on sugar and drinking. And what I really loved about our conversation was these things can often seem like you are giving something up or it's kind of about being parsimonious or not having as much joy, but he's all about relishing these changes and making them positives. And it's definitely something that some of the things he said have stuck with me long afterwards as I'm kind of cooking, as I'm preparing stuff. He's like a real kind of um, guru in that sense, but he wears it um, amazingly lightly and he was very good fun as well. It's just nice the fact he even had some really good things to say about retailers like Waitrose who've really listened to what people have said and about sourcing and providence mm. and and that's the information that we give and do now. Yeah, completely. I couldn't agree more. He was great, basically. And there's even some uh, lovely cold water swimming chat, which I think uh, people people will be quite into. And uh, it will make you possibly want to just kind of dive into the nearest freezing body of water. Um, shall we get on with it then? Sounds a good idea. Here is our Life on a Plate interview with Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Life on a Plate. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, Alison. It's great to be with you. What sort of influence did your did your parents have on your relationship with food? What sort of things were being cooked in the household as you were growing up? Absolutely massive. My mum is a great cook. She entertained uh, at home in, in the 1970s, which is when I was learning to cook. And I got to a point where I was uh, pretty much in charge of the puddings for her 1970s dinner parties from the age of eight or nine. But also I did, I, I, it wasn't only sweet stuff. I was interested in the savory stuff too. Perhaps I had more of a, a sous chef role on, on, the, on the starters. But I became very interested in this very con 70s concept of a savory mousse. And so there's egg mousse and avocado mousse <laughs> and smoked haddock mousse. Quite a lot of gelatin going down in these dishes. But these creamy, savory textures, which, uh, which I found appealing and intriguing. Uh, so... I mean, I was also, a, a, you know, I, I love being outdoors, but if I couldn't be outdoors, I was very easily bored. And I was a sort of restless kid who was 
pulling at, at my mum's skirt saying, well, mum, what can I do? I'm bored. <laughs> but if she could spare a bit of time, she'd take me into the kitchen. We'd do some cooking together. I began to get reasonably confident reasonably quickly and vaguely sort of self-determined in the kitchen. And she would just keep a vague eye on me. Um, and she was quite indulgent, which is why I developed the habit that eventually got me sacked from the River Cafe, which is not being really that good at the tidying up and the, and the, and the washing up. The less fun bit. The less fun bit. But I'm incredibly always grateful to my mum for all of that and also for introducing me to some foods because I, I was also really quite fussy, mm. oddly mm. enough, despite being interested in food, I was quite fussy. I, I loved ketchup and I loved I love fish fingers and but she would she did that thing of making sure that before I was too old she put a whole fish in front mm. of me and made a big ritual and showed it to me and got me excited about it. So I remember eating a whole uh grilled mackerel mm. uh the first probably the first piece of fish I'd eaten that hadn't been covered in orange breadcrumbs <laughs> and actually finding it delicious and exciting and then wanting to go and catch one and and, and that kind of mm. thing. Kind of on the other side of that, I've seen you also talk about boarding school and the food there and maybe the influence that had in terms of it, it not really being something that you particularly enjoyed. Talk us through that. It was pretty grim, mm. you know, pr pretty grim. Um, vegetables always overcooked mm. uh, and, and you know, meat horribly overcooked, slices of meat put with gravy covered, covering them that then went in the oven for an hour, <laughs> cooked in the gravy. You know, pretty grim. Uh, but so, and there were just a, one or two exceptions. They weren't the same for everyone. But, of course, if there was something you liked, you'd then absolutely descend on it. So it might have been one of the steamed puddings mm. or, 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 or actually the roast potatoes weren't too bad. They were reasonably crispy. So you could go nuts for the opportunity to eat something that, that was a bit less grim. Yeah. Um, but that, that made one thing that made me, it made me value home cooking. Mm. And when I get home that, um, and when I was away at school, my mum's cooking was something I thought about a lot. And when I got home, getting into the kitchen and cooking with my mum or for my mum, uh, was something that meant more and more. And it meant, you know, that you, you know, you weren't putting up with the, the, the the porridge and the and the grim school stuff <laughs> and it took me i love porridge now but i could i, I was i was well into my 30s and uh, uh, before i actually st set about yeah. co cooking a porridge or pre preparing oats in a way that i could properly enjoy because i've been so put off by the lumpy gruelly watery <laughs> porridge at school those associations go really deep don't they i remember at my own school what was your what was your grim school recollection jimmy i remember the vats of custard with this with the skim on the top that would be kind of taken off and mashed potato that was like really dry yeah. and, and no lumpy butter. and you know you'd be yeah and you'd be made to eat it and pudding was and i wonder if part of it is why we all became quite pudding obsessed because it was probably the one thing that you liked and you were kind of, you were always forced to finish everything else to get to it. And so you fetishized sweetness and pudding and sweets and things like that from a very early age. That's absolutely right. And of course, sweets were often sold as the reward for eating the stuff you didn't like. And, and you know, whilst we could, you know, reminisce about that and have a laugh about it, at one level, that, that has become quite a problem for the way we eat as a society. This sense that sugar's a reward, that car carbs are where comfort is, has is so deeply ingrained in the culture. And that's what props up the, you know, the, you know, the industrial 
production of confectionery, sugared cereals, uh, and baked goods, um, which is which is not something that we should banish from our lives, but it is something that needs to be approached with caution because there's not a, in a lot of the versions of those products, there's not a lot of great stuff in them. Yeah, yeah. I wondered. Um, there was a period where you went to Africa. Was that? correct and and you sort of started out with this kind of wildlife focus and conservationism and it seems like something that you have carried into into your work with food talk us through that period where did you go in africa what what was that that's like? absolutely right when i left university uh, a trip i'd been planning for some time with one of my best friends we went to southern africa we bought a beat-up pickup truck in Johannesburg, and we drove it all around Southern Africa. We managed to get a sort of calling card for a few conservation organizations who, who uh, let us in and we interviewed them. Yeah, they, I, I, we were trying to research a book. We had this very uh, uh, high ideal that we were going to write a massive tome about the future of conservation. But, of course, we were just wet behind the ears. We were students. But we did mean we got to go to some incredible places and and interview some amazing people and see some wonderful wildlife. And actually, it was when I was after that first trip, when I was back in London, trying to find a way to get back because I'd, I'd learned a lot and I knew I, I'd realized I'd been very naive. But I did want to go back and get involved in the world of conservation, perhaps to uh, to to work for a while in that world before uh daring to start pontificating or writing about it and it was while i was sort of marking time wondering how i was going to get back to africa that i i went to see if i could get a job at the river cafe because i already loved cooking and 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 then the cooking thing stuck and evolved and 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 i didn't make it back to africa for a long time i i did return uh, some years later with my wife and family and then i went back uh seven six or seven years ago to make a program about the illegal wildlife trade. And that concern about the wider environment has informed a lot of the, the food uh, issues that I've looked at. That conservationist aspect of your life is not something that I'd ever read about until I was doing some research for today. And it just suddenly for me made sense that that link between conservation and your role now as, as a campaigner and how that drives you it does seem and it feels actually quite satisfying that it it's come full circle and that there is a chance to explore issues and so the programs i've done around plastics and food waste and the illegal wildlife trade have been a wonderful opportunity and so often uh we're also able to make the connection uh with with food and um with most of these things these programs that i've been lucky enough to do the the first important thing is to drag the issue right out into the into the middle and shine a light on it so that everybody can see it. And uh, of course, it's one thing to identify these problems, and it's a whole different thing to solve them. And and I guess it's part of the conservationist or or campaigners or activists lot that you you never feel a problem is solved. Um, because it because it never is completely solved, but at least there is something there is some sense of having raised awareness and and having more people who understand the problem, more people who care, and that that's what it's not me being uh, I don't know incensed about food waste that makes a difference. It's lots and lots of people out there 
and shoppers who, who then expect uh, their retailers to do something about it or big business or government to change uh, policy or change the rules or simply to practice business in a better way. In terms of how people first got to know you, I looked back at the River Cottage, um, the, the first series, and you know it's got a literal caricature of you driving out of the city and things like that. <laughs> yeah, the cartoon Hugh, the little, yeah, the the little cartoon curly Hugh. homunculus. <laughs> um, and I wondered, how did you feel at the time of that kind of almost cartoon version of yourself or people's perception of you? And and how have you, yeah, how have you squared that with, with how, how you're living your life now and things like Eat Better Forever? Well, it's, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, yes, there was that little caricature cartoon opening title sequence. But what I think we were doing with River Cottage, uh, which, which is actually pretty consistent with, with what, what I'm sort of still talking about now, but it was just it came through a different lens, but we, you know, we weren't being shy about, we were showing people where food comes from. Okay. So I was trying to grow it at my little cottage, grow my own vegetables, keep my own chickens. Um, and for me, that also meant, you know, when I kept pigs, taking them to slaughter and we didn't shy away from those moments. We, we, we had me loading them up and talking about the experience. And I think that was at the time quite a new thing so the issue of provenance and knowing where your food comes from and it, it is a great development that supermarkets have stepped up to really talk about the provenance of their food and where it comes from and 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 tell you farmers names and 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 and, and offer that connection and i think that's important and i think that's something that that many people uh, find you know very reassuring and at a time when there's still a lot to be anxious about in the world of food so give us the information tell us where it comes from uh, tell us reassure us uh, with 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 clear facts and uh, and understanding that it's good for us and that it's going to make us keep help to keep us well I want to move on now to talking about your new book eat better forever can you talk us through the thinking behind it and how long it's been in the works as a project? I mean, I've been interested in what healthy eating is for a long time. Um, and I've kept a, a, a beady eye on the kind of books that seem to me to be addressing it, the issue in a sort of sensible and interesting way. But it struck me for a long time that, and I, this is partly to do with the partly to do with the way that the publishing world works but a lot of books tend to to gather or or, or fix around a single idea one big idea that's going to solve all your problems of eating or or weight loss or, or whatever it might be and I just feel I've been in the world of food and trying to look after myself and taking an interest in uh issues like the national obesity crisis which I made some documentaries about Britain's Britain's fat fight for BBC. I, I've been looking at that for long enough to know that there isn't a single fix. There isn't a magic bullet for healthy eating. But it's also a very interesting time because there is quite a lot of consensus. What has been a very confusing issue uh, for a long time, I don't think it has to be that confusing. I think there's a way to pick a path through it. 
But the best way to do it for me is to um, talk about all the things we can do. Why, why fixate on a single idea when there are actually lots of different things we can do to look after ourselves better and to eat more healthily? I'm hoping that people who use the book will find themselves in a better place uh, with a healthier way of eating from which they are deriving a huge amount of pleasure. Um, one of the most important things about this book is to uh, to make sure that there's a lot to relish, a lot to a lot to feel good about physically and, and in terms of your physical and mental health, but an awful lot to look forward to in terms of the sheer pleasure of of eating good food. It's a time of year that where people are wanting to eat good, healthy food, but at the same time they're also looking for indulgent comfort food. How's your comfort food changed over the years? What you what's comfort food now? And what might it have been? Some of my comfort foods are a kind of new, if you like, and some of them are very old school and traditional, but have probably been tweaked. So one thing I've done with lots of classic things like cakes and biscuits and puds, you know, pies and crumbles, is I've uh, upped the wholeness because the big principle of, principle of this book is to base our diet around whole foods or whole-er foods. <laughs> and by the way, I don't just mean brown rice and lentils. That whole foods are two separate words. I mean foods, everything from fruits and vegetables and meat and fish and milk and grains and pulses and things like that. All those things that are whole natural foods that we haven't that haven't been sent to a factory and been stripped of things and messed about and, and heavily processed. But we have an opportunity to to go wholer still. So I don't really have white flour in my kitchen anymore. That might sound a bit radical, but um Everything I ever used to make with uh, white flour, I now make with the light wholemeal flour. Um, not, not, not wholemeal bread flour, but the light wholemeal flour that's got some bran in. And I find for pastries and cakes uh, uh, and biscuits, it works extremely well. Are they a little denser then? They, they can be a little bit denser, but if anything, they've got a little bit more flavour. There's a, there's a, as in the same way that brown bread has more flavour than white bread, there's a nuttiness uh, to, to the whole grain. Uh, uh, the, you know the, the the bran and the endosperm that stays in a whole grain flour isn't just isn't just good for you. It actually has a taste, and it's a taste that you can absolutely learn to relish. And it will be it will be a little bit different. But I mean, one of the things that took me a long time to sort out was was getting rid of the sugar in my tea. Because one of the reasons I've worked <laughs> with this, I have a really sweet tooth. You know, I I. I I learned to cook. The first thing I ever learned to cook is peppermint creams. Oh, wow. They're really sweet. <laughs> it's just sugar, egg white, icing sugar, egg white, and a, a little peppermint. bit of uh, peppermint essence and may maybe some green food coloring. I mean, that's just sugar. That's just sugary Play-Doh. I think it's a real generation thing that everyone, everyone of that, that age kind of learned to cook. That yeah. I mean, I, I, I think the, the Katie Stewart Times cookery book's got a lot to answer for. It's got an absolutely fantastic se section on sweets and cakes and yeah. biscuits, uh, which, is, which is what I uh, cooked my way through. Um, but, but, and, I, and I was, uh, uh, the short time I worked as a professional chef at the River Cafe, I, I was the pastry chef. I did the puddings. So I know a little bit about sweet treats, yeah. but I also know you can absolutely make them delicious without put using a lot of refined flours and refined fats and refined sugars. Mm. You mentioned the River Cafe there and your, uh, the period when you were a professional chef. You've written in the past very entertainingly about that, um, that time, that job, being in that iconic kitchen and also being let go from that job. Um, <laughs> being, 
being let yeah, that go. Yeah, I used the um, euphemism yes, there. That's that, you did. You could have said fired <laughs> because, uh, uh, well, I think I think they I think that they, they, they might have felt they were letting me go, but I kind of felt I felt I was being fired, and it was it was quite distressing at the time. Um, but at the same time, I'd learned so much there, and I kind of knew that I came in. I, I literally walked in off the street as an amateur. I'd had no formal training. And I knew that I'd brought a few bad habits into the kitchen with me. That I wasn't very good at tidying up after myself. <laughs> um, uh, I talked a lot, asked a lot of questions. Uh, I, I mean, I had a great time, but um, it did it did uh, focus the mind. And I I remained great friends uh, with both Rose Gray, the wonderful Rose Gray, sadly no longer with us, and the brilliant Ruthie Rogers. And th they, they take some consolation, I know, in, in when I say they did me a bit of a favor, because I had to focus the mind and decide whether I was going to go back into another restaurant kitchen and, 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 and try and make it as a, as a restaurant chef. And I had to stop and ponder the fact that I'd just been fired from what was actually probably one of the most relaxed uh, high-end high restaurant kitchens in, in, in London. So was I really then going to go and work in a uh, for some crazed uh, uh, young chef trying to get his third Michelin star in some kind of dungeon kitchen in the middle of London? Obviously mentioning no names, um, <laughs> but I, 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 that's when I thought, now I, why don't I see if I can write about food? And that's what I turned my attention to, and, and was very lucky and got some lucky breaks and and. Uh, have hugely enjoyed uh, the whole world of writing about and, and then after that making television programs about food. I hope we'll get on to the campaigning and we've already kind of touched on it but it's been such a huge part of what you've done and such a consistent part of what you've done. And I, you know, I personally remember from um, the the big food fight, that series of shows around chickens. And, you know, these were things that I just had never even considered as somebody, you know, growing up in maybe like more of an urban environment and not really, not really thinking about kind of what was actually going on in terms of intensive food production. What lessons have you learned along the way about the best way to get these messages out there and how to adapt it for people that, that may have a different take on it or may have gr grown up with a different relationship to food. There is a lot we know now uh, that, we, that we didn't know a while back. We can cut through the confusion with some really good evidence-based science, but what we can't do is peg all our hopes on some kind of single fixed diet, one big idea. Um, uh, but what I think is really important is to make sure that people feel that eating well is not going to be an act of asceticism or denial and that it's not going to cost an absolute fortune. And the key to that is variety again, because this is where pleasure comes from, is in the great diversity of different foods that, that you can eat and that you can find out there. And it comes in um, remembering to relish the deliciousness of foods in their natural state. And, that, and if we learn to just dial back the sugar for example, suddenly the flavors and aromas and natural sweetness of ingredients really start to shine through. So if we release ourselves from some of these dependencies, um, it may just take a, 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 a little while to make the adjustment, but the rewards at the end of that are so huge because we get to a point where we're, we're drawing 
so much pleasure and goodness from foods that are more natural and have the power to do us so much more good. Yeah. And I was just going to ask, as you were talking there, Hugh, a lot of this seems to flow from your own personal experience. And you talked about your sort of uh, genetic sweet tooth, as it were, or like having a really naturally sweet tooth. How have the changes presented themselves in your everyday? And what are the things that, what's your kind of struggle been like in terms of keeping keeping up these philosophies and keeping up these attitudes? And Well, I think it's precisely because I was aware that I was struggling at times that I I really took the trouble to think things through and try and get past some of the issues that I was being stuck on. I, I've said in a quite a light-hearted way that I've always had a very sweet tooth. Um, but but people who do have a sweet tooth uh, will know that that can be that can be quite tricky because you 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 and I've been been in this place where you you turn to sweet foods and easily available sweet foods, biscuits and treats and confectionery to give you a treat when life gets a little bit stressful. And the, one of the slight ironies, perhaps, of, uh, you know, I've, I've, I may have a, managed to cultivate a fairly ho- wholesome image, and I have grown my own vegetables and reared my own livestock for quite some time. But also, I've also buzzed about the place, uh, having a very exciting time, work, but working hard and sometimes getting really stressed. And in those times, I have grabbed unhealthy snacks and and piled up a, a few uh, not very thoughtful calorie-laden uh, snacks in the middle of the day and come to depend quite quite heavily on the little boost and uplift of, of a drink at the end of that working day and to a point where for a, a, for a very long part of my life I was drinking every evening almost without fail, not, not, not necessarily to excess, although occasionally uh, a couple of glasses too many, but but just coming to depend on that and and one of the things i realized that was that um part of the reason uh certainly for the for the sort of snacking is that you were that that, that you were eating in order to distract yourself and you were distracted while you were eating so mm-hmm. you, you so whilst you grabbed something because you wanted a a a boost um or or a a sweet treat and then when you're eating it, you weren't really even thinking about that because you were thinking about the next bit of filming or something yeah. you had to do. And yeah. this is why one of the most important uh, things for the book for me has been to wrap all the seven ways or the first six ways in the, in, in the seventh way, if you like, which is to approach uh, eating in a mindful way. Mm-hmm. Now, that's mm-hmm. a bit of a buzzword at the moment, and it can sound uh, <laughs> a, a little bit uh, hippy-dippy. Um, but what that really means, another way of, of, of expressing that is just to approach food in a thoughtful way and in a conscious way. I guess also if you're eating mindfully, you're actually aware of actually whether you're actually hungry or not, rather than just bored. That's absolutely right. And the, the other thing that I've, that oh, there's been a lot of talk about, and it's a good thing to talk about because it's definitely a powerful, potential powerful approach for a lot of people, is fasting and not eating and actually learning to be hungry now that isn't easy for everyone and it doesn't work for everyone and for certain and for kids and and uh pregnant women it's it's not advisable or healthy but for those of us who who are uh either looking to lose a few pounds or just boost our uh our, our the ability of our digestive system to 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 rest and repair 
um, we know the emerging science of fasting is quite compelling. And people like Michael Mosley have written uh, uh, about this. And of course, we've had the very popular 5-2 diet. But for me, it's, it's not really ideal to take an idea like that in isolation and make it the diet, the go-to thing that's going to change your health. Much better to see it in the context of whole foods and, and eating of variety and dialing down the re refined foods. It's, it's part of the picture. And, and then it becomes potentially even more useful and even more powerful. Yes. You, you mentioned at the start of um, that answer there, you, the idea of children in this. And, you know, I've got young kids and I'm constantly trying to make the sort of positive eating decisions that you are talking about there. Um, how do you find it as someone with a family as well to kind of balance what everybody else in the house is eating or wanting against your own decisions that you're trying to make? Such a good and important question. And I have four kids of very varied ages and they've all, they've all had very different tastes and very different uh, ways of, 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 of eating, which we've had to accommodate. The good news is they all like some really healthy stuff. And, and, and you know, that's a great start. And one thing you, you can do, and there's a, the, a, a, a big spread in the book that shows you uh, how to do it, is you could do a family veg audit or a family food audit. And just to remind yourself who likes what so that nobody gets left out. Yeah, and yeah. the first thing is to work with those positives so that if you have got, uh, yeah. you know, if only, if only one of your kids likes celery, well, don't make that a reason not to buy celery. Make sure you've got some and make sure they get them. My young daughter, for example, is quite fussy about cooked veg, but she loves munching and crunching almost any raw veg. And she'll, you know, she'll pick up a fennel bulb and eat it like an apple. But if I, if I put it in the <laughs> oven with a little olive oil and garlic and roast it till it's caramelized and deliciously tender and, and smelling incredibly fragrant and makes me want to devour a whole tray of it, well, she won't touch it. But that's okay, because I just cut, take half a fennel bulb and put it on one side. So go, go with the strengths of what you know your kids like. And kids don't mind having foods that they like fairly often. Um, but also remember that kids do actually love savory flavors as well as sweet flavors. And lots of kids, for example, love garlic. So a little trickle of garlicky oil or butter on the peas or the beans or the, or the greens or the cabbage can often be a little bit of catnip that, that gets those kids enthusiastic about the veg. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a really really good point, and I've got similarly a child who raw veg crudités things like that is all fine, but as soon as you kind of cook it or flavour it or season it in a way and roast it in a way that I yeah, would or love, allow two different vegetables to touch each other. Whoa! Oh wow! Oh yeah! Oh, what are you doing? No, yeah, of course, yeah, and you're right. The, the idea of an audit is such a good. Yeah, it's such a good idea and just to kind of remind yourselves. And it, it's fun. It's actually a really fun thing to do. You know, it's getting around the table to to talk about food and talk about what you like and and plan. And why don't we have that? You start suddenly start remember that actually everybody likes green beans, but we haven't had any for ages or whatever it might be. I mean, it sounds really simple and, it, and, and elements of it are, um, but it's just to press refresh on your shopping list and, and broaden your horizons a little bit and get back to that idea of variety and and trying new things or, or reminding yourself of, of new things it's a brilliant idea you touched on the drinking um there as well and that's definitely something that i i'm always trying to find sort of non-alcoholic alternatives that still give you that feeling of 
of a treat or something out of the ordinary or sharpness or bitterness. Um, You're right on the money. That's exactly what I think is the right thing to do. But And it's been difficult because it's so easy to fall back on very sugary soft drinks. And whereas actually what you want something is a little bit, maybe a little bit dry and acidic and aromatic that you can drink slowly. I think kombucha is is a great find, you know, fermented tea. Drinks like that are um, can be very interesting, much lower in sugar, uh, natural acidity, and of course, live, fermented, full of good bacteria, and and uh, and very very delicious. And again, you can make that. You know, I sometimes add a few bashed lemon verbena leaves or mint, or squeeze half an orange to make a little kombucha cocktail, and. So these little rituals where you take that moment where you would on another night have, have a drink and it, and it's getting those two or three days without alcohol into your routine so that you just sort of break that total regular it's seven o'clock, I'm pouring a drink or it, I am pouring a drink, but tonight it's alcohol free and tomorrow also. And then maybe I have a drink on Thursday. I've recently discovered, I think it's something I learned from you years ago was saving the syrup from fruit. So you poach it in a little bit of sugar, but not a lot, and then add that to a tonic water. So I've got a freezer full of quince juice. Or or top it up with kombucha and you've got an extra sort of fragrant quince element to your, you've got yourself a nice quince kombucha cocktail. Yeah. And I think you talk about habit and ritual and I think so much of the time we've got these kind of hardwired ways and associations with, oh, it has yeah. to be wine, it has to be this, it has to be that. But if you add it to your routine, and I think culturally in this country, there's a lot of, particularly the period we've just come out of, there's been a lot of focus on comfort and release and, you know, drink like in that kind of traditional way. And I think if you can bring in these new traditions, then, then it's going to be a positive step. That's right. I mean, habits are just that. Habits are just habits. Now, that doesn't mean they're easy to break, but you know, you can once you recognize them and make a decision, you can absolutely program in a different way of doing things or new things on your shopping list and putting new things down on the table. And it may feel unfamiliar at first. You may get you may even get a negative reaction from from some of the family. I mean, brown rice for example, uh I thought uh, there was a moment where I thought the family just wasn't going to come with me on brown rice. <laughs> I, I got into it, but I, I find it nuttier and tastier and more interesting, and I'm much mm. happier with less of it. But there was certainly a—I mean, not because we you know, we don't have rice that often, maybe maybe once or twice a week, um, uh, if that. So it took a while before it was the new family habit, and. Mm-hmm. The first few times, there was quite a little moaning. Oh, well, why can't we have white rice? So, it's because you're <laughs> writing this book, isn't it, Dad? Yeah, you're writing this book. I love it. Now, <laughs> now, I don't get a peep out of anyone when there's brown rice. Everybody tucks in and loves it. And, and, the, and the mumbling and the grumbling uh, has all gone away. And everybody's super happy to have it on the table. Yeah. You've got to push, push through that pain threshold. I'm going to uh, get the brown rice on later and see how that goes. Soak it for a couple of hours if you can. It helps cook it to a nice tenderness that makes oh, it excellent. really nice and slightly fluffy around the edges. So it soaks up the sauce just as good as any of the white rice. That's a That's very a good secret. tip. Mm. So do you do, do, is it you or your wife that does their cooking most nights midweek? Well, I'm delighted to say that it's everybody and the kids are, are in their different way, all very keen cooks. They've each got their specialities. 
my daughter Louisa likes baking and making. She makes a wonderful apple tart, mm. uh, old-fashioned. cuts cuts it beautifully. It's a slow, methodical process for her. Mm, and she does it beautifully. Uh, uh, sort of layering the apples right round in a spiral inside a, a pastry made of wholemeal flour, which everyone again is very very happy with. Um, whereas my teenage son loves a stir fry or noodles or broth spiced with chili, dash of soy sauce, ginger, or that kind of vibe. He he totally loves broths and stir fries. That's his thing. Nice. So in in the family store cupboard. If you're um, trying to balance kind of unprocessed whole foods with time and convenience, are there any good store cupboard ingredients that you kind of rely on? Well, uh, one of the things I made a real effort to do and, and I'm really enjoying now is I used to have, like a lot of people, a lot of pulses at, at the back of the cupboard or at the back of the shelf, and, and they just didn't come out often enough. And now I have tins as well as pulses. So there's that instant option. And I do get them out and I do soak them and cook them sometimes, not just to uh, throw into a stew, which I do often, or you know, make a bolognese into a chili and maybe uh, have it with a salad rather than, you know, rather than pasta. Um, uh, but also to bash up into hummuses or to throw into lunch boxes with a load of crunchy veg. I mean, I think tinned foods are brilliant. There's quite a lot of recipes for tinned fish and tinned pulses, especially if they're then mixed with something fresh, like a like a like a grated root or a, a sliced apple. And mixing up roots and fruits and leaves and shredding them and changing the textures so that they're juicy and that things mingle together. Although we know my daughter doesn't like it when that happens, but the rest of us love it. So all, all that mingling of different things and sprinkling of toasted seeds or uh, nuts on the top. So there's loads of recipes in the book for uh, lunches and lunch boxes, portable foods that, that in uh, you know 15 minutes in the morning or the night before, you can chop a bit of this, grate a bit of that, pop it in a box, sprinkle a few spices or seeds on in the morning and take it with you and know that you've got something really stimulating that's re that, that's got a lot to relish, lots of different textures and flavours to take with you. So if outdoors played a big role in your childhood and um, you were, if you weren't in the kitchen, you were outdoors, how does it play now? Do you, do you, are you able to spend much time outside? Absolutely. I, I'm outside every day. So many of us have learned to just value that time outdoors and to understand just how important it is for our well-being. And being, exercise is, of course, important, but even just being outside and having the, the sky above you and being able to see trees. I mean, people will certainly have heard of, of, of the um, research that showed that people who even had a view of greenery out of their hospital window had faster recoveries than people who are maybe looking out on a wall or, or a car park. That, you know, that's, that's just solid science, the, the, the way in which this connection with nature helps us to be well. I've incorporated that, I've incorporated that into, into my life in one way or another for a long time, partly just by being a keen gardener and enjoying outdoor walks. But for the last couple of years, I've done something very systematic, which is to try and have an outdoor cold water swim as often as I possibly can right through the year. Very, very lucky to have a pond uh, at the bottom of a field at home. It's not a fancy uh, sort of natural swimming pool. It is just a pond. A gar a 
shared with the ducks and the reeds and the and the and the tadpoles. <laughs> but it's deep enough in the middle that the weeds don't grow, and we can swim up and down. I've done it pretty much every single day, and so I've been right through this cold spell with the water temperature going down, with frost on the wow. ground, um, water temperature going down to four or five degrees. Do you kind of have anything to eat or drink after, or do you? Do you is that part of the ritual? I have a a, a nice cup of tea afterwards. I might, mm. depending what the days, what day I've got <laughs> ahead of me, I might. Does it? It does make you feel a little bit hungry, but a nice cup of tea. I also like masala chai. I've got this mm. little habit now. Nice. I, I use leaf tea, not tea bags, uh, these days, and so I save the leaves from my first two cups of tea. And then I chuck them in a little saucepan and add some cardamom, some bashed ginger, a twist of pepper, maybe a little fresh turmeric grated if I've got it, and then uh, a good dash of milk. And I boil that up. Uh, so uh, I've got my third cup of tea is masala chai with the tea boiled and recycled and a nice hit of spice from the, the ginger. And that, that's the one I quite often have after my swim. Mm. Wow, sounds delicious. Hugh, thank you so much uh, for your time and for your wisdom on food and cold water swimming and lots of other things besides. It's been really great to have you. Thank you for joining us and thank you for sharing sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Jimmy and Alison. It's been great. You've been listening to Life on a Plate with Waitrose. I'm Jimmy Famarewa. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavy, and to our guest, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. To learn more about the series, please go to waitrose.com forward slash podcast, and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.